Amen. It was the late Dorothy Sayers who said that God has suffered three great humiliations. Number one, the incarnation, when the infinite became finite. Number two, the cross, where Jesus took all the sin, all the shame of the world upon himself. Number three, the church. In an awesome act of self-denial, God entrusted his reputation to ordinary people. I'm almost certain she meant that as a gentle jab. That there's something important. There's something powerful about reminding us of what we're called to do, that God has entrusted his reputation to ordinary people. The world knows about God, by and large, not from a Bible that they read, but that the people that they meet. Someone has famously said, for many people, the only Bible they'll ever read is your life. And it should cause us to take pause. We need to take seriously the admonition in the book of Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 that we do not give up the meeting of ourselves together as is the habit of some, but that we're to encourage one another all the more since you see the day approaching. And the day that he's talking about is a day of judgment, a day of final resolution, a day when all opportunity will have passed. Much of my ministry and the ministry of Calvary South Denver has been devoted to the teaching of God's word. There's a reason why most of my life has been spent teaching the Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter and book by book. The reason, of course is because it's important to me that when you get to heaven, people who say, well, who is your pastor? And did he prepare you to come here? That you'll have something to say. In our recent presidential election, I asked a Christian why she supported the socialist candidate for president. What was it about socialism? What was it about the socialist candidate that she found so attractive? Why was socialism her choice when so many socialist governments, past and present, hate Christ, hate Christians, and aren't about freedom, but about restricting freedom? Her jaw dropped. She had no answer. But then I began to think about you and me. I began to think about Christians who are confronted with questions all the time. Why Christ? Why Jesus? Why Christianity? Why are you a Christian? Why do you believe the way that you believe? We should be able to give what Peter said, an answer for the hope that is within us. We should know the, at least the basics about creation about the fall of human beings, about redemption and reconciliation. We live in a culture where the Bible is rarely read, even by those who claim Christ as Lord and Savior. Over the years, people have offered all kinds of reasons why they neglect fellowship, why they neglect Bible study, 
For some, Bible study seems so difficult. For many, the Bible seems hard to understand. And I'm willing to concede and admit that there are passages that are difficult. But you don't have to be a Greek or Hebrew scholar to grasp what the Bible is saying. People are sometimes intimidated by the word study. It sounds like there might be some sacrifice involved. It sounds like there might be some work involved. It sounds like there might be some participation that's required. But studying the Bible has been the greatest adventure of my life. I have in my library, I am thinking close to 6,000 volumes. Many of the books in my library I've read many times. There's only one book, there's only one book that I have ever read that I've never been able to master, that I've never been able to come to grips completely with, and it's the Bible. There are people who doubt the Bible and question the Bible. Even in our own community here in Denver, I was going through uh, online research and there's a church in the community called the Doubters Church. The Doubters Church is a place where, where people can go and, and criticize and doubt and condemn the Bible and begin to think about the contradictions, but the word of God is like a mirror. The truth is that most people reject the Bible and they reject Bible study not because of their perceived understanding of its lacks or its deficiency. The word of God is like a mirror. It reflects the sin in our lives. The real reason some people are down on the Bible is because they've never really been up on the Bible. They've never really read it. To me, the most compelling reason to trust the Bible is because Jesus trusted the Bible. Jesus believed the Bible. And if Jesus was wrong about the Bible, then so am I. So are you. Why should we study the Bible? I want to give you just a couple of quick notes. It's going to go quickly. Bible study is essential for spiritual growth. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Bible study is essential not just for growth, but the culmination of growth and maturity in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. And of course, Bible study is essential to spiritual effectiveness. You see, growth maturity and effectiveness is going to come in direct proportion not only to your understanding of the Bible but also to your love for the Bible and your willingness to trust it and believe it for your life. And so we begin. Bible study is essential to spiritual growth. What I want you to do is to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm not going to have you jumping around all that much. But we are going to start at 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to be making our way a little bit left in the New Testament. In 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 2, Paul talks about the elect. According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit 
for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. That's chapter 1, verse 1. In verse 2, in verse 1, it says, Therefore, laying aside malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all evil speaking. In verse 2, it says, As newborn babies desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. One translation says, as newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, that you may grow in respect to salvation. In the opening of the verse, he talks about some things that only God can do. Only God can save you. Only the spirit of God can sanctify you. And only the word of God can grow you up. Just very briefly, let's see if we can unpack the verse. Paul, when he's writing, or excuse me, Peter, when he is writing, makes reference to three things. A baby's attitude, a baby's appetite, and a baby's aim. Now, some of you are experts in the area of babies. You've had them. You've started life with them and then continued with them. I don't need to tell you that a baby wants what a baby wants. You can't reason with a baby. Babies want to eat when they want to eat. They will sleep when they want to sleep. Now moms desperately try to put them on a schedule, but they don't always cooperate. When babies aren't fed, do they throw a party? Do they say, it's okay, I, it, it doesn't matter, I don't really need to eat anything. When babies aren't fed, they are upset. And they have no way to disguise their discomfort. What happens when babies receive the bottle? It's relief. It's calm. It's a, imagine a, a person goes in this violent emotion from, think about it. If that little child were six foot six and weighed 200 pounds, they would call, crawl out of their crib and they would kill you. This is why babies are made so small when they begin life. When a baby receives bottle or receives milk, there's this sense of well-being and this sense of calm, sort of like I get when I have green chili. It's, it's just like I said, it's God's Prozac. It goes to your brain and all of a sudden everything seems right in the world. Babies need milk to grow and new Christians need the word of God to ensure growth. But Peter's going to pick up another word when he says newborn babies long or desire, one word translates it, crave the pure milk. This speaks of the baby's appetite. To my taste, formulas kind of disgusting. But for some reason, babies seem to love the stuff. Peter's point is that we Christians should desire crave, demand the word of God. This is something that causes me no end of concern. 
Again, because we live in a culture and a society that doesn't crave, that doesn't desire, that doesn't demand the word. So many people demand entertainment. They demand something less than Bible study. In Psalm 19.10, it says, the word is sweeter than honey, but you would never know it by all the people who make Bible study not the most important thing in their life, but the least important thing in their schedule. Howard Hendricks used to talk about three kinds of Bible students. The castor oil types, to them the Bible was bitter, something that you stomached to get past the pain. There's some sort of problem inside of you, so you pop a few scriptures like you would Tums. Then there's the shredded wheat Christian, the shredded wheat Bible student. The Bible is dry. You know it's heavy in fiber. You know it's nourishing, it's filling, but it's just something that you have to eat and thank God for milk because the Bible is like eating hay. The third type he called the strawberries and cream Christians. The strawberry and cream Christians can't get enough. It's sweet to the taste. It's delicate to the palate. They cultivate an appetite. Spiritual truth begins to energize them. Which one are you? Hallelujah. But then there's the third word. Attitude. Appetite. And now, aim. What is the aim of the Bible? In part, it's healthy growth for the believer. The milk makes growth possible. And again, it's not simply that you might know, but rather that you might grow. I'm always interested when people come up to me after a service and they say, I never knew that. And I'm happy. But there's something way more important than just getting a brand new bit of information. It's the kind of information that changes the way you think or the way that you feel or the way that you act in in your relationship with the Lord. For the Christian, growth means continuing in salvation. Clearly knowing is important, but knowing doesn't produce growing. The Bible was written for you. It was written for your comfort. It was written for peace. It was written for growth. But most of all, it was written so that you would be more and more like Jesus so that you would be conformed into the image of Christ. That's what Paul meant in the book of Romans when he said to be conformed into the image of Christ. The purpose of the Bible isn't to make you a smarter sinner, but to make you like your Savior. Children may come to an end. There will come a point where most kids won't grow another inch in height. But the Christian may grow in other directions. Growing up, growing old may be the lot of most, but the Christian's growth comes from 
the Word of God, from the Bible. So the Word of God is the primary tool to grow the believer. I have grandchildren, and they range in age from teens down to tiny. And you know what the tiny ones want? To be older, without exception. Every child under the age of 10 gauges their age in halves. How many adults do you go do you know who says I'm 60 and a half? <laughs> yeah, there comes a point where you want to drop the half. But children want to push ever forward towards maturity. They even refer to you adults as grown-ups. The Word of God is the primary tool spiritually to grow you up. And also, Bible study is essential to spiritual maturity. If you know your Bible, you can turn to the left of your Bible, and as you make your way through the pages, you're going to go past James, and you're going to find yourself in the book of Hebrews. I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 5, and I want to read a passage to you. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, there we read, But solid food, well, I'm going to begin in verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you. Again, the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. All human beings start life as babies. But there's something tragic. There's something disconcerting. There's something alarming when a baby fails to thrive. You may know someone or you may have experienced in your life a setback or a child with some kind of disability. You notice that the child isn't developing properly or speaking properly or walking properly or developmental delayed and it causes great concern and it causes great difficulty. You see, all Christians start off as babes, but they must not remain babes. When, when the writer of Hebrews says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracle of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. That means that there's a problem when the only thing that you can digest is, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Don't get me wrong. There are few things that will ever be more powerful, more impacting, more life-changing than the simplicity of the gospel. But the writer of Hebrews says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. For he's a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. The goal should always be continuing maturation. The writer of Hebrews has much to say about Jesus. 
and about the superiority of Jesus. Many of you were with me when we went through the book of Jesus and we talked, or the book of Hebrews, and we talked about the superiority of Jesus. We talked how Jesus is superior to the prophets, superior to the angels, superior to Moses, not the singing group, Moses in the Bible. Jesus is the supreme object of faith. Jesus is superior to priests. And the writer of Hebrews says, I want so much to tell you more. The writer understands that certain biblical concepts are hard to explain. And that explanation is going to require Maturity, discipline, a willingness to hear. They should have been teachers, but they still needed to be taught. The baby can only stomach milk. Mature believers can easily digest solid food. The issue isn't whether or not to get upset with children. No one should get upset with the baby and go, what? Do you want your steak medium rare? Do you realize how much money I paid for this steak? Only an idiot would require a child to eat that which the child cannot eat. And yet, there is an expectation that children grow and that children mature. The Bible provides solid food for the mature those who are of full age, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised and notice they're exercising it so that they would begin to understand what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. The Bible makes it possible for the believer to know what's right and to know what's wrong. You see, we all grow up in a world where we are taught from a very early age, some things are right, and some things are wrong. But the Bible contains the mind of God. It contains the state of the human condition, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. The Bible brings maturity to the believer. We may grow up in Christ, but the truth is we'll never outgrow the Scripture. Because the Scripture widens and deepens our years. That's what Charles Spurgeon said. And so finally, Bible study is essential to spiritual effectiveness. If you continue to make your way to the left, you're going to come to the little book of 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul, writing to Timothy, predicts apostasy. But in the midst of difficulty and apostasy and rejection, Paul is going to remind Timothy that the scriptures are your resource so that you can hold on. He says in chapter 3, verse 16, all scriptures inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God, or in this case, the woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. In verses 14 and 15, Paul tells Timothy, if you look just back, just for a moment, in verse 14, it says, but you must continue, not abandon, not give up, not stop. You must continue. 
in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Paul tells Timothy, continue in the things that you've learned. Believers are to continue in the scriptures, not simply know them, but live them. In our Bible, uh, in our vacation Bible school, the children were singing a song about learning it, loving it, living it. How, how wonderful. I should have asked Kendall to bring all the kids up and sing the song. But again, it's not good enough to simply know it. You have to live it. It's not enough to know that your teachers teach the truth. Timothy knew Paul believed the scriptures. Timothy learned the Bible from his grandmother and from his mother and from Paul. At least four things are true about this passage. Number one, the follower of Christ is to learn the scripture. Number two, the follower of Christ is to be assured of the scriptures. That means have confidence in them. Apply them to their lives. Apply them to the experiences. The truths of the scripture matter and apply to us. And number three, we should know our teachers and make sure that they teach the truth. And number four, we're to continue. That means abide, dwell, Remain in the scriptures. Paul says the scriptures inspired. The word that's used there is an unusual phrase. It means God breathed. Well, what does that mean? What's interesting is Paul is telling Timothy that God breathed the scriptures. What in the world does that mean? Again, in Psalm 33, 6, we get a clue. It says, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made and the host of them by the breath of his mouth. If you've ever looked in the sky on any given night and you ask the question, where did this come from? According to the Bible, God spoke and the worlds came into existence the universe came into existence. The stars that you see and the galaxies that you see and the solar system that you live in and the planet that you occupy was breathed out by God. The Bible says that the scripture is inspired, breathed out, not simply by men who wrote the scripture, but God superintended and ordained it. The Bible claims a supernatural origin by the creative activity of God. Matthew Henry speaks of the Bible as a divine revelation which we can depend on. Infallibly true, he writes, the same spirit that breathed reason into us breathes revelation among us. For the prophecy came not of old by the will of man, but holy men spoke as they were moved or carried forth by the Holy Spirit, it says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. 
Imagine you're on a raft in the Colorado River or one of the other great Colorado rivers and you're on that raft and now the water is taking you where you need to go. You are in the raft and you are paddling the raft, but God is taking you where you need to go. The prophets and apostles didn't speak from themselves, but they spoke what they received from the Lord and then delivered to us. When Paul speaks about all scripture, he's making reference to Exodus and Genesis and or Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He's talking about Joshua and Judges as he's making his way through the Old Testament. Paul is talking about those books that you have in your Bible. And Paul claims that these Old Testament books are scripture. These are God's words. And if Paul is making that claim for the Old Testament, I'm going to suggest to you that the claim is true for the New Testament. A.T. Robertson, perhaps the most gifted Greek scholar of his time, says, quote, There is no doubt that what the apostles claimed to speak by the help of the Holy Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5.27, Colossians 4.16, just as the prophets of, of old did, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Peter thus puts... Paul's epistles on the same plane with the Old Testament, Peter, making reference to Paul's writings, say that people will take Paul's words and twist them just like they do the other scriptures, authenticating that it is in fact scripture. You know, there are three things that made scripture scripture. It had to have been written by an apostle or the close companion of an apostle. It had to be internally consistent with the revelation that God gave. And number three, it had to be widely used in the churches as reliable. So what makes any statement true, credible, believable? Wayne Grudem equates the authority of the scripture with God's authority. He writes, to disbelieve or disobey any word of scripture is to disbelieve and disobey God. B.B. Warfield Two generations before him said, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Scripture is God-breathed. Jesus criticized the Pharisees about their religious traditions that undermine God's word. He says in Mark 7, 13, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you've handed down, and many such things you do. The apostles recognized and understood that their message was, the word of God, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Peter, again, reminds us that Paul's writings had the same status by calling his writings the other scriptures in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. So believing the Bible is the same thing as believing God. John Stott wrote, quote, Our claim is that God has revealed himself by speaking, that this divine or God-breathed speech has been written down, preserved in scripture, and that scripture is in fact God's word written, which is therefore true and reliable and has divine authority over men. We could add one more thing. Bible study is one of the essential ingredients for profitable living. 
for training and instruction in righteousness. That word profitable is very interesting in the original language. It's the Greek word ophelimos. It means helpful. It means beneficial. It means useful. Four specifics are given by Paul. That it's useful, beneficial for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. In short, the Bible serves as the source for belief, for teaching, for understanding about who God is. About the human condition. How you're created by God. How your parents fell in a garden disobeying God. And how they were driven from that garden. But even though they were driven from that garden, God would set up all of human history to bring about redemption and ultimate reconciliation. The true story, the reliable story, is found in your Bible. The scripture reveals the truth. The nature of significance and what is true. The Bible provides rules for life and for instruction. The Bible is profitable, it says, for reproof. Do you know what that means? It means conviction and rebuke. It's for when we find ourselves off course. We've lost our way. And what it will do is put us back on the path that we need to follow. We're taught obedience and discipline. Even when it means suffering. And so the Bible says... The Bible is profitable for reproof and for conviction, but it's also profitable for correction. Correction means setting what's wrong right. It's the same word that was used in the Greek language to describe someone who had broken their bones and and the physician comes and resets the bone so that it can grow correctly. And finally, for instruction in righteousness. What that means is that God wants human beings to know how to make things right. How to set things right. When things have gone wrong and you're asking the question, how can I make it right? How can I make right what's gone wrong in my life? And the Bible reveals how we can live soberly, righteously, godly in this present age. Looking, the Bible says, for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. So the book, the Bible, is a book that can be understood. But I'm going to suggest something else. Not only does the Bible claim to be a book that can be understood. I'm going to suggest to you it's the only book that understands you. I I hear people use the phrase, he gets me. She understands me. He gets me. She gets me. The Bible understands you. John Wesley wrote, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. I want to know how 
to land on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way. For this very end, he came from heaven. He has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. I have it here. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo, unius, libri. I know, people used to talk that way. It just means a man of one book. John Wesley understood Latin because all formal training was in Latin. I took Latin just in case I ever go on Jeopardy so I can get Latin phrases. I go, Alex, I'll take Latin phrases for 200. <laughs> it's one book. The scripture perfects. The word is artios in the Greek language. Artios. It means to be made complete. It means to be made whole. It's a word that means when something is empty and you begin to fill it up, it becomes full. No person is complete or mature apart from Christ and apart from God's instructions. You were made for the Lord. Any person who attempts to live apart from the Lord will fail in life. Whatever life you have and whatever life you want and whatever purpose you want for your life will ultimately be thwarted in direct proportion. When you close this book, you walk away from this book. You refuse this book. We are trained in righteousness by God's word. William Barclay writes, quote, The study of the scriptures trains a man in righteousness until he is equipped for every good work. Here's the essential conclusion. The study of the scriptures must never be selfish. It must never be simply for the good of a man's own soul. Any change, any conversion, which makes a man think nothing but of the fact that he has been saved is no true change and is no true conversion. Pause with what Barclay is saying. He's basically saying any person who just basically says, I only want to know enough about the Bible to get me into heaven and to keep me out of hell, misunderstands the gospel and misunderstands the Bible. Barclay writes, he must study the scriptures to make himself useful to God. And useful to his fellow men. He must study, not simply and solely to save his own soul, but that he may make himself such that God will use him to help save souls and comfort the lives of others. No man is saved unless he is on fire to save his fellow men, unquote. How convicting is that? He must study that God will use him to save souls and comfort the lives of others. No man is saved unless he's on fire to save his fellow men. What he is basically saying is this. 
When the Bible speaks of salvation, it can't mean a salvation that leaves you in the condition that you were in before you met Jesus. The Bible brings growth, maturation, and effectiveness. Spiritual effectiveness. The Bible, its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding. Its decisions unchanging. David wrote in Psalm 138 verse 2, I will worship toward your holy temple. I will praise your name for your loving kindness and truth. For you have magnified your word above your name. You know, I have a note in my Bible about the names of God. The primary names and the compound names. God is called El, Elah, Elohim, El Shaddai, the mighty God, El Elyon, the most high God, El Olam, the everlasting God, El Gibor, the mighty God. And look what David says, but you have magnified your word above your name. David understood that people might misunderstand the name. David knew the power of the name, the honor of the name, the glory contained in the name, how it revealed that God was and is, and yet he simply says that his word, what he says, is above his name. Do you know what this means? It has to mean that you can't exaggerate the importance of your Bible, the study of your Bible, living, loving, and learning your Bible. The Bible is divine in its source. It's dynamic in its operation. It's definite in its claim. It's distinct in its prophecy. It's distinguished in its message. It's devoted to its promises. That means it will accomplish what it says it will do. It will grow you. It will mature you. And it will make you effective. Men and women in ministry. A.Z. Conrad wrote, quote, This book outlives, outfits, out." Last, outreaches, outranks all books. This book is faith producing, it's hope awakening, it's death destroying, and those who embrace it find forgiveness of sin. It makes perfect sense to me that you want to be cleansed. It makes perfect sense to me that you would want to go to heaven. On a radio program this last week, a friend of mine said, who happens to be Jewish, she said, do you want to convert me? And on the radio program, I said, you've already conceded that you believe that, that there's a Messiah. How in the world could I not want anything other than that you should know your Messiah and love your Messiah and be saved by your Messiah? Of course I want you converted. 
because I want you in heaven. He wasn't upset. He was flattered that I cared about him because he knew that I really do care about him. That no matter what he believes or what he refuses to believe, I'll still care about him. I'll still pray for him. I'll still communicate with him to the best of my ability the hopes that are contained in a Bible. Why should you study the Bible? I'm hoping that each and every one of you can say to grow me up, to make me mature, and to make me have the effective ministry that God wants me to have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, sometimes it's easy to get off track. Sometimes it's easy to forget. And Lord, you've given us a constant reminder. We can open up our Bible and from any book and any chapter and any verse, Lord, I pray that we would be able to find a way back to the cross, back to Jesus, back to our Savior who loves us and died for us so that we could have this real relationship with you. And so, Heavenly Father, again, I pray that we would love what you love and that we would begin to despise and hate what you hate. That, Lord, we would begin to know the difference between right and wrong and good and evil. And that in maturity and in simplicity, we would live our lives for you. In Jesus' name. Amen.